This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. program, WKRP in Cincinnati and Lou Grant will not be presented this evening. Tonight's special presentation is brought to you in part by Hardee's. We're out to win you over. And by Clorox, the makers of Tilex Tile Cleaner. Prepare yourself for an in-depth examination of something mundane from IC Robot's day-to-day existence. Welcome to This Boring Life. Hello, my kids. It is me, IC Robots, and I am back for another another episode of This Boring Life, the show in which we, we take a look at the origin story of me, IC Robots, and the way we do it is... One topic at a time, and the topic we are going to tackle this week is something that is more or less a tradition in the IC Robots family, and this thing is something known as baseball, and during the course of this, we will also get into my my teenage years and my fascination with collecting baseball cards. I used to, I used to collect baseball cards like I collect action figures now, and I'll, I'll delve into that world. It should be, it should be fun. Baseball cards were like... They were quite the thing back in the day. I don't know how much people collect them now. I know dudes are into magic cards and like Pokemons and Yu-Gi-Oh and things like that. But I don't know how much uh, how much interest there is in sports cards. It used to be that here in here in good old Santa Rosa, there were like there were like quite a few baseball card shops at one time. There was one by Baskin and Robbins. There was one across from the high school. There was. There was one in my neighborhood. There was one in Roseland. There was one out on uh, Santa Rosa Avenue. And as far as I know, there is... I think there's one out on Santa Rosa Avenue in a different place. And there is one in Roseland. But I, I don't know if either of those are still open. But I do know that they were open recently. Within like at least the last six months or so. But... Let's hit off the first topic, the grand old game of baseball. Baseball is the grand old American game. It's the the national pastime, and the the IC Robots family has always been heavily into baseball. My dad was a baseball player in high school, Little League and all that stuff, and then he played uh, ball in the Army, and he's just... A giant baseball fan, even to this day, he gets like the baseball, the baseball package on cable. And to him, the Cubs are life. The Chicago Cubs are life. As you know, I, I hail from Illinois and we were, we were Cubs fans. Some folks there are Sox fans. We, we just happen to like the Cubs. And even till today, the Cubs are like a super big deal. When, when they won the World Series the other year, it was such a, 
such a monumentous occasion. It was something that had been building up for so long that I was in tears. My brother was in tears. He was in tears. It was... It was something that, something that meant a lot to all of us. I think it meant a lot to, like, everybody. Everybody, everybody likes the Cubs, dudes. They're those, uh, lovable losers. I, I just, I grew up on that. I grew up on baseball. I grew up on the Cubs. I grew up on Harry Carey. I grew up on Wrigley Field. In, in my baby book, my baby book with the picks, there are, there are a few notes in there. On the, on the opening page, my parents took some notes about, like, famous dates in my existence, like the first day I walked, the first day I talked, the first day I did whatever. And there are a couple like baseball notes. One of them I remember is Baby Icy Robots was sitting in my lap when Hank Aaron hit the all-time record home run. That was one. There was another one I can't recall. Just imagine it was like, uh, Baby Icy Robots was sitting in my lap when Pete Rose ran over Roy Fossey at that, uh, all-star game, whatever year that was. That wasn't it. But just imagine, imagine it was something like that. So baseball is in my blood. I am even a fan until today. I don't watch as much as I have at some times, but that's because my favorite team at the moment, the Oakland Athletics, they've been my fave team for a while. I did like another team at a different point of my life, and I'll talk about that in a, in a sec, but the A's are stinking it up, and it it kind of seems like there's like this, some weird conspiracy with the owners because whenever a player gets successful, they just they just trade him off, and that's hard to watch. It's painful, but still, I support the uh, the green and gold, green and gold until I'm dead and cold is the saying around here. When I was a younger chap, I I liked to play baseball and softball and stuff. I talked about all this in the. In the gym uh, class episode uh, a couple back, I enjoyed playing ball after school, going and doing batting practice. I've always, even till today, I love going to the batting cages and roping some dingers. I, I don't hit a lot of dingers. I hit some solid singles, some doubles and such, but I still think it's fun. And I didn't so much get on the organized ball tip, but me and my bro and my cousin and this kid cockroach and sometimes, sometimes some other kids would... We would do like home run derbies out in the, out in the back of the condo complex that we were living at at the time. There was like a big common area. And I think I'm going to say maybe like a hundred yards, maybe 150 yards. There was this wide open flat grass area. It was just grass, just flat, kind of thin maybe 150 yards, and then there was this short wood wall. And at the time, ESPN was re-airing old episodes of this show called Home Run Derby that aired, I'm going to say, in the 50s. It was black and white, and it was it was a home run contest every, every week between some of the greatest sluggers in history. There was, like, Willie Mays. There was, like, Mickey Mantle. There was, like, Harmon Killebrew just... All these legends of the game. From the wonderful world of sports, we bring you Home Run Derby, where each week the leading home run hitters of the major leagues will compete in a home run hitting contest. You'll meet such stars as Duke Schneider, Eddie Matthews, Rocky Colavito, Mickey Mantle, Harmon Killebrew, Jim Lemon. Willie Mays, Jackie Jensen, and many others. 
we were so into that show. They would they would air these old episodes on ESPN and they're black and white and they are they are just so darn wholesome and we would we would go and imitate this and have our our own home run derbies over across the street behind my cousin's house. We we had a bat like a normal aluminum bat. We only had the one, so we all had to uh we all had to share it and as I recall, it was a bit on the on the smaller side, it was more like a bat for my younger brother than it was for, for someone of, like, my size and stature. I need, you know, I need, like, a log, dude, like a chopped-down tree. I'm so mighty, but all I had was, all I had was this small bat, and we would use that and these balls called rag balls. I wrote an ep- a, uh, article for the retroist.com about rag balls, and I go over some of this, uh, home run derby stuff there, but it was something we did a lot. We spent a lot of time doing this. The balls are, they're soft and kind of stuffed with, like, fabric of sorts. Imagine, like, you get, uh, like, a nylon exterior and you stuff it with, like, a couple tube socks. This is the 9-inch nylon ragball baseball. It's available in white or the yellow for increased visibility. Uh, It's a pretty soft ball. It's got a simulated stitch to make it look like a real baseball. You had to rope them over the over the wooden wall. If you hit anything except for a rope over the wooden wall, you were out. You were done. It was difficult to hit the uh, tube sock ball the the distance. It wasn't something you could do every time. And also, the field was so thin. You had to hit it directly straight. You couldn't pull it. Or hit it the other direction either. It had to go perfectly straight. Almost between like the goal post. Imagine like football. You know like you're kicking a field goal. And you had to go like right up through the goal post. It was almost like that. Because there were there were trees on either side of this this wall. It wasn't so much like a complete wall. You could, you could walk through. There was like a small opening. But there was what we called the wall there. And we would do home run derbies all the time. You got to... Uh, You got the other guy to just, like, he would try to lay one in. They're just, like, softballing him in there. And I got really good at hitting, like, long, straight fly balls, which is something that does not, does not serve you very well in the world of baseball. That's usually the furthest place to hit a home run for. And just hitting fly balls isn't really that useful of a skill anyway. You want to, you want to hit line drives. You know, you want to hit them. You want to hit him straight, but I got super good at hitting these super moonshot fly balls from playing Home Run Derby all the time. That Home Run Derby show was so neat. It was, if you go, if you go on YouTube and look up some episodes, they are, they're just a hoot. And you will see like real life contests between Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays and that, that sort of stuff. That's like a dream fight. That's like for real seeing a fight between Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali. That's not exactly the same thing because it's not the same generation, but dudes don't often compete head-to-head in baseball. So this was, uh, this was something we were just, oh my gosh, this was our jam for such a long time. Home Run Derby behind the, uh, behind my cousin's house. Watching that show every day, five days a week, they played two episodes in a row on ESPN. It was, it was around the same time that they had the, uh, Global Wrestling Federation we would watch watch those in the afternoon. But, uh, 
Watching Home Run Derby really got us interested in the history of baseball. And we started reading, like, baseball books. I'm talking about me and my younger brother. We read, like, baseball biographies. I read, like, Reggie Jackson's bio and Willie Mays. I read one about a Craig Nettles, the third baseman for the Yankees. I read Thurman Munson's book. I read all these, all these books out of the school library about baseball players. And then... We started playing this computer game at one point, Earl Weaver Baseball. It was it was a baseball simulator where you would you would make teams and then run simulated seasons. That's what we would do anyway. I think there was an option where you could have game by game gameplay like you would, you know, choose your pitches and swing at the balls and whatever. There was that option, but we like to run simulated seasons against each other where like we had the only two teams in the league and we would make our teams by drafting all the dudes in the in the other teams. You could like trade players back and forth. And then eventually we got to the we got to the point where we started creating entries for for fictional baseball players. For example, my brother he started it off when he gra- grabbed uh, Roy Hobbs from The Natural and he made it so that Roy Hobbs like never got out. The dude batted like 900 and he hit a home run like every every other time at bat. So he made him with like stats like that. And then I came back with, for example, the the kid who, um, the kid with the rubber band arm in, what's it called? The Rookie, where he gets like an injury and they do some kind of like surgery and they make his tendons too tight and he gets like an incredible fastball and made that guy and we would just go back and forth making up every baseball player from every baseball movie that you could ever imagine and the deal in the game was that you could create players and you assigned them stats and we made it so that we would watch baseball movies and then see what the players did over the course of the movies and give them give them the stats that it seemed like they had like for example let's say uh Willie Mays Hayes from the classic baseball film Major Leagues you might make that guy and then you would give him you know very great speed because he stole so many bases but not so much home run power but maybe like good batting average if he hits the ball on the ground. Like, that sort of thing. And some of these dudes in these baseball movies were, like, perfect players who never got out. So we would have these teams packed with dudes with, like, 800 batting averages with, like, 100 home runs. And the seasons would turn into these just complete debacles where guys would be leading the league with, like, 15,000 home runs. It was, this was, like... One of our favorite pastimes, when we weren't out playing Home Run Derby, we were making seasons of Earl Weaver baseball. Eventually, my cousin, he got into it too. And then for a while, we had these cousins living with us. These these two Australian cousins came and they were visiting my grandma for a period of time. It turned out to be years and years and years. And they would come over and eventually we expanded our Earl Weaver League into like five or six teams. I had a lot of fun doing that. That's something that I could just not imagine. I couldn't imagine doing that now. I couldn't I couldn't take the time and nitpick over these stats and nitpick over these books and shows and trying to find all these new players because it was always fun if you could find some new baseball movie or some new baseball baseball book and like throw some new player in there and just totally swing the game. It was in retrospect a a weird way to spend your time, but still 
it was fun. I don't regret it all, all that much. I did, I did learn a lot about baseball fiction. I know like a zillion different fictional baseball players and I don't know, I don't know what that's worth, but it was, it was worth something at the time. Good old Earl Weaver was a manager for the, uh, Baltimore Orioles, if I am remembering correctly, they had a picture of him on the box of the game, which is a weird, weird selling point. You know, you're trying to sell like a baseball game to a bunch of kids and you have like a 75 year old white haired grizzled baseball vet, like right there on the cover of the box. Still though, must've worked. We got it. We copped it and we played it like years, like literally years of our time were spent playing (laughs) Earl Weaver baseball. Another baseball game that we played a lot of was Baseball Stars on the NES, the original Nintendo Entertainment System. The the NES was my younger brother's, and it was it was in his room. Our rooms were right next to each other, and he had the he had the NES in there with his uh, black and white TV or whatever. And this game, Baseball Stars, was one that we spent like. Maybe even more time than we spent playing Earl Weaver baseball later. The the basic idea of the game is that it's a uh, it's a baseball video game. It has kind of like a overhead view of sorts, and the the thing that made it really cool and really distinct for the time was that you could make your own teams, and the the cartridge had an internal uh, an internal battery and a memory, so you could. You could save your teams and come back to them again later. You would you would play seasons and over the course of the seasons you would make money and you could use the money to improve the improve the statistics on your players. So theoretically, your team was always getting bigger, always getting better, and you were always always having more fun because you were roping more dingers. And that's that's basically what baseball is about anyway, just rope and dingers and stuff. We heavily got into the team building aspect of of this game. We we went with original characters in this one. Unlike Earl Weaver baseball, we decided to like make up our own dudes and I came up with with this family of baseball players known as the O'Connells. They were the O'Connell brothers traveling baseball team and I I had like a million different O'Connell players over the years. I had um the the main O'Connell, the main star of the team was Peaches O'Connell. He was like a big, bald, super buff dude who batted cleanup, played center field, and had amazing home run hitting power. There was Frent. Frent O'Connell was super fast. There was there was Ike O'Connell and his magic bat Dutch boy. I had so many of these dudes and Eventually, like, the O'Connell brothers moved off into other mediums, like, we started making them in different games, you know, wrestling games, whatever, whatever game we were playing, there would be O'Connell brothers, and my brother, to oppose the O'Connell brothers, came up with the, with the Squigmans, his team was the Squigmans, and they had, they had a culture similar to the Smurfs, there was, there was Papa Squig, and hefty squig and they didn't look like smurfs the gimmick was the squigmans looked like like the character squiggy from laverne and shirley my bro's team was the squigs and all the squigs wore they had a they had a uniform a very distinct uniform we were both into the uh the wwf and one of the teams we liked a lot tag teams that we liked a lot was demolition axe and smash here comes the axe, and here comes the smasher, the 
Axe and Smash wore wrestling gear that some could say was reminiscent of sort of a, maybe a bondage look. They wore like brass buckles and leather straps. That's how my brother put it. They wore brass buckles and leather straps and he, uh, he dressed his team, the Squigmans, that way. Now, it wasn't like he altered the way they look in the game. That wasn't possible, but we would, like, draw pictures of our teams and draw lineups. And he had, like, he had these dudes that looked like Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley wearing, like, brass buckles and leather straps and baseball hats. And even thinking of it now, it's so weird and so funny. But this is, uh, this is how you spend your time when it's, like, your parents are at work and it's summer and you have... You have, like, the entirety of the day to kill inside the house with just you and your bro, you know? Just weird things happen. Weird, weird good things happen. I remember, like, and this is, this is off topic, but we had a friend who lived over across Highway 12. This is when we lived in a, um, in a different area of Rincon Valley, and he had, he was the kid that had, like, all the NES games, and we would... We would, like, borrow games from him and trade games with him and stuff, but the way that we got there was somehow along the way we acquired this, this green Schwinn bike, this, it was, a like a girl's 10-speed. I have no idea where this came from, it just did, like, you know how things will, from time to time, just appear in your backyard? This was one of, this was one of those backyard things, and... I would ride the bike. Oh, the bike had a, like, what do you call it? Like a book rack on the back, like a rack where you could, you could put things and you, you know, you could use tie downs to tie them there. Anyway, it had one of those racks on the back and I would, I would pedal and my bro would sit on the back and we would, we would head up past, uh, Whited School, Whited Elementary, which at one point was called, um, Rinkin Valley Elementary School. We'd go past Whited and... We would wait and wait and wait, and then when we saw a chance, we would jam across Highway 12 as fast as we could, and along the way there, it was a super, super duper steep incline, and we could, like, we could barely make it up on the bike. A lot of the times, we would end up walking. I couldn't, I couldn't pull his weight. Sometimes I'd throw him off, and I would ride, and he would have to walk, but once we made it across Highway 12 you could jam down this incline on the bike and the kid across the street lived down sort of like a gravel a gravel road it wasn't like a full-on paved road yet and we would fly down this road with him on the back and me steering this was this was cool man i have really fond memories of doing that it seemed like seemed like we were going so fast when we drive past there we have to drive past that street on the way to the uh to the Safeway on Calistoga Road, I see the street that we went down, and I'm like, dang, that was pretty steep, and that was pretty sketch, but I don't know, man. We made it through, and in hindsight, I guess we, I guess we didn't make any mistakes. We're both, we're both still here, we're both still happy, and we got to trade a lot of games with this kid. For some reason, I think his name was Isaiah. He was a friend of my brother's from elementary school, and this, this homie had all, all the NES games. But I, I don't want to cut Baseball Stars short. We played Baseball Stars to death. That was, that might have been the reigning all-time game champion. There were, there were a couple other games that could give it a run for the money. But the battery and the memory that the game had had us going back to it over and over and over again. We would play like, 
complete seasons against each other on this game over the course of a week and then we would we would do it all over again the memory seemed so high tech at the time any game that had a memory was was just dynamite but it was also always a risk because you could just like put the game in wrong and have it pop out or do something like that and you could erase the entire memory altogether that happened that happened more than once one time actually and i don't i don't remember the the specifics of this, my my brother put the game in kind of weird, and it kind of like went in and popped out, and he hit the button really quick or whatever, and at the time, we were like super scared that the memory was going to be erased. Do you remember the pain you would feel when you had so much invested in a game memory, and then all of a sudden, kaboom, it's gone, the entire, the entire everything wiped out. We were afraid that was going to happen, but what happened instead was... Somehow, the way that the game went in, it activated some kind of a glitch or whatever. I don't know, man. I'm not an NES scientist. I don't know what happened. I just know that it did happen. But the end result was that he wound up with, like, a billion dollars in game money. And I I was, you know, like a struggling team, like the Oakland A's with, like, a low low payroll or whatever. That was how you would... That's how you would pump up your players and make them better. You could increase their stats by by paying into the system. I don't know if I've... I don't know if I've explained this already. I probably did, but maybe I didn't, so I will do it. I'll do it again, but he wound up with like a zillion dollars and he jacked all of his players up to the maximum and for a while he was he was dominant. He was just he was destroying me. He was the Yankees. I was the uh poor old Oakland A's as it were. Besides playing baseball video games and like talking about baseball, we also would watch this TV show called The Baseball Bunch. I don't know if you guys were into this. I was I was crazy into it. It was a sort of a comedy baseball how to do it show. They would they would give you tips and they would bring in the pros to show you different things. The host of the show was Johnny Bench and the main character really was was the San Diego Chicken. The San Diego Chicken was such such a cultural icon at the time. I don't even know if if they still have that guy. They probably do. I would think in San Diego still have the chicken, but uh, I would imagine it is not, not the original chicken. I honestly don't even know if it was the same guy in the chicken outfit all the time or what. I think that it was, but I don't know. But anyway, Johnny Bench would be there and they would have a bunch of, bunch of youth baseball players. And they were known, they were known as the baseball bunch. And for all you bunchers at home, keep practicing those tips and good luck on the mound. Let's go. This is one of the shows we would watch during the summer, naturally, right? Baseball and summer go hand in hand, the the boys of summer and all that stuff. But during the summer months, ESPN would schedule in sort of a block of like teen shows and things like that, like the baseball bunch and sort of the home run derby slot. These things were all kind of hand in hand. You remember me talking about home run, home run derby earlier in the show, but... The Bunch, man, we were crazy into The Bunch. I remember one time they brought in Ozzie Smith, the Wizard of Oz, to give you, like, fielding tips, and they had, like, Craig Nettles on the show offering you, like, batting tips. It was, it was good time fun. I thought the San Diego Chicken was, like, the funniest dude. Man, I wanted to be a member of, I wanted to be in The Bunch so bad, I wanted to hang with good old Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench seemed like, he was, like, the nicest dude, or so it seemed. I don't know, maybe he was... Maybe he wasn't. It's hard to say without having without having met him. But on the show, his personality was so nice. It's like I wanted to go hang out with him. I wanted to get into like these wacky hijinks with the 
with the San Diego chicken. The the online presence of the Baseball Bunch is not that great. I don't even know if this show is available on DVD. I do not. I do not imagine that it is. I have one tape. One time at the dig, I found a VHS tape of highlights of the Baseball Bunch. It's only like half an hour, and it doesn't really fulfill my my needs to see it. I would. I'd like to see some of that Baseball Bunch again. There's only like a few. A few clips online. Hold on. I am going to do a bit of searching here to... I'm away from the... And now I am back here on the mic. I apologize for doing that. The Baseball Bunch ran from 1982 to 1985. And it looks like it is not available as an entire series on the on the good old DVD or the VHS format. Here is the Baseball Bunch on hitting. That's the one that I have. I, I miss this show. I would like... I would like to see some of it again. You know what? Now that now that I think about it, Tommy Lasorda was on the team too. The the uh, manager of the L.A. Dodgers. That guy was he was an icon of the time too. He's probably an icon of all the times. He played the he played the dugout wizard, and that was the second segment of the show, as I recall. The show would open with the bunch and the chicken and Johnny Bench meeting up with some player of the time, like Steve Garvey or uh, Daryl Evans, somebody like that. And they would go over like various tips and have like offbeat shenanigans and whatever. And then the second segment was with Tommy Lasorda, I believe. I am on I'm on Wikipedia right now. I sort of hopped over there while I was while I was chit-chatting with you guys and it says that only 3 tapes of the bunch were ever released, one on pitching, one on hitting, one on fielding and they were not they were not like entire episodes. They were the segments with the players, I guess, you know, they'd have like the one with Phil Negro where he was showing you how to throw the knuckleball and then like the one with Tom Seaver on the pitching one and then they would have like Hank Aaron or whoever on the batting one. You get the idea. They also do not have any of the Lasorda segments. I think that the the fact that I cannot find entire episodes of the Baseball Bunch only makes me want it more. The show went on for five seasons. You might as well do one of those like super cheapy DVD releases. I would definitely buy it. And I don't buy I don't buy a lot of DVDs or any of that sort of thing that much anymore. I've I've got all the ones for the movies I need to have and then everything else plays on cable. I realize that I I should I should buy more just to support. I do I do rent. I don't buy. I'm just I'm not rich man. I'm not made of money like that. I would definitely go out there and purchase a baseball bunch set if it uh if it was available for like in the $5 bin at at Walmart. Yeah, right. Uh, let's take a, we're going to take a quick break right here. We're going to play a short clip from the VHS vault, and then we'll be back to, to talk about the, the second crux of the show. This is my obsession with baseball card collecting. Well, I was obsessed back in the day. I'm, I'm over it now, but we'll talk about that. Okay, here we go. Come on, let me, let me see you do it here. Stand back here and throw it over to the chicken. Maybe the chicken will catch one. Heads up, Clucker. Chicken, you haven't caught one all week long. Freddie, when you took that frisbee, what'd you do? I turned my wrist. And what'd that make the frisbee do? I made it spin. So it's spinning around, and that's what makes it curve, right? <laughs> the baseball bunch will return after these messages. 
Man, I love The Bunch. I wish they would just start airing some old episodes of The Bunch. If you asked me if I preferred the more famous Brady Bunch or the less popular Baseball Bunch, I would have to say that I preferred the Baseball Bunch. I think that they were, I think they were a cooler group of kids, but I have not seen as much of the Baseball Bunch and I have like a longing for them, whereas, you know, the Bradys are like, they're always in your face, not in a bad way. The Bradys are dope. At any rate, at one point, me, my dad, and my younger bro got like, crazily into baseball cards. I don't know what it was that started this, but a lot of other people were into it too. I don't know what, like, the big bang of baseball cards was, but one day it seemed just like everybody was into cards. It must have been that somebody, like, sold some card for, like, a bazillion dollars, and it got, like, a lot of publicity, and people picked up on it, and, you know, before you know it, you're all, you're all collecting, uh, baseball cards. I remember that my dad brought it to, he brought it to us. My brother was playing Little League. I was not. I was just, you know, I would watch some baseball and play some baseball video games and stuff, but... The two of them would go off and they would practice baseball, which was dope. I'd go sometimes and hit some fly balls and stuff. And one day to kind of like keep the baseball vibe going, I guess, my dad, my dad is a giant baseball fan. He is one of just, you know, the all-time classic baseball fans. He's been watching it since in the day he gets to Baseball Network. He watches his Cubs, watches his Cubbies. We, we come from, we come from Illinois, but anyway, to keep the baseball vibe going, I guess he decided, hey, let's uh let's start collecting cards. Or maybe he started collecting cards himself. He had a he's been working on this set of 1956 tops for forever. He he gets close, but there are some there are some high priced cards in that set. There's like a mantle and a maze and like a Hank Aaron. And these cards all go for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It's a hard it's a hard investment to make. He he kind of pokes away at getting the common cards here and there, and he, he's been working on this forever, but he was working on this, and he sort of brought it to the two of us that, hey, collecting baseball cards is a fun and worthwhile hobby, so the three of us started going to different stores and looking for wax packs. Wax packs are the, that's the medium in which a pack of cards is brought to you, only tops used actual wax wrapping paper at the time, but up until then, Topps was the gold standard, and they wrapped their baseball cards, their movie cards, and TV cards all in, like, a nice wax wrapper, so the whole thing got named Wax Packs, so we would go, we'd go from different place to place looking for different wax packs. At the time, there was Topps, like I said, and then this other company popped up called Don Russ. If I remember right, and I may be completely wrong. I'm trying to just do this off the memory. I believe Donruss was from Canada. And then there was Fleer. Fleer was another company. They were not like a second-rate tops, but they did they did play second fiddle to tops. And then eventually this other company came out called Upper Deck. When I'm at the ballpark, there's just one thing on my mind. Hologram baseball cards are back at Denny's. You get an Upper Deck card free with any purchase from Denny's Classic Hits menu. So collect all 28. They're more exciting than the game. Well, almost. And Upper Deck was like a glossy card on a thicker card stock. And their wax packs were like a shiny foil. And that was what, that's what everyone was looking for. And 
the different stores would have different selections of the wax packs. We would go to like Long's and look, we would hit the 7-Elevens and go just all over the place trying to find, in reality, I think we we're just like driving around looking for the upper deck cards. They, they were the newest and they seemed the coolest. They also, because they were the newest, they had like the smallest uh, distribution circuit. So you didn't see the uh, upper deck as much as you saw the tops. You saw tops everywhere. 7-Eleven had tops, you know, Circle K had tops. Everywhere you go has tops cards. Some might have tops and Donruss, but you hardly ever saw anybody, anybody that had Fleer. But Fleer was, to my opinion, this is just what I witnessed, this is what I saw. I don't know if it was like an overall truth. The Fleer cards felt like the least desirable of all the upper deck. Donruss, then Tops, then Fleer. That was, that was the order. But you would hardly ever even, you'd hardly ever even see Fleer unless you went to a baseball card shop. Again, that's how it was around here. It may have been, you know, different uh, distribution circles in different places, saw cards and like different, uh, you know, different groupings. But around Northern California, it was hard to come up on a, a pack of Fleer cards outside of a card shop. One area though, when you did see Fleer cards, there was one area that Fleer felt like they were dominating, and that was basketball cards. We mostly collected baseball cards, but from time to time, we would get a pack of, like, basketball cards. And when you did get one, it was almost always Fleer. I remember that 1991 Fleer set of cards uh, was was just terrific. Here's highlights from the second annual Fleer NBA championship game. Anderson spins behind the back to Carl Malone. The mailman delivers from three-point line. Alley-oop to Green, great pass over to Wallace, it's hammer time! Clear a game in every pack. It felt as if this was the first time basketball cards were out because there was this, this long sabbatical with tops. For a while they made football, basketball, and baseball cards, but then they kind of moved it down to just, you know, baseball. If they did, if they did make the other ones, they didn't reach this area very much, but we did, we did see the Fleer basketball cards, and they felt in a way fresh, and it felt like for a lot of the dudes who were rookies or were around the age of being a rookie, this was... This was the first uh, card you had of them, so it felt like a rookie card for numerous dudes. Fleer Basketball. Fleer Basketball had it going on for a minute. I gotta give it up to that. But Upper Deck was the champion of all the wax packs, and it was the champion for one reason only. Well, there were many reasons. Let's say they were the champs for this main reason. When you were out looking for cards, there were those that would... They would buy packs to keep them sealed for potential future value. They thought that if they put them away sealed, that they may contain valuable cards. And in the future, they will become a very valuable spoiler alert. They did not. But there were others that would, they would open their cards in hopes of finding rookies. That's what you were looking for. Just like in, just like in the comic collecting world where you're looking for the first appearance in the card world, what you're looking for is the first appearance or the rookie card. And Upper Deck had a rookie card that everybody wanted. That was the rookie card of future Baseball Hall of Famer, Ken Griffey Jr. They get a hold of this game. Then all of a sudden, everybody's Ken Griffey Jr. They get my vertical. They got my wheels. 
that gave away my patented swing. It's a whole new ball game. Ken Griffey Jr.'s winning run with ACM graphics, only on Super NES. Here you go, Mr. Griffey. Sorry, kid. Car sold separately. Ken Griffey Jr. was the son of Ken Griffey, who was, in his own right, a dynamite baseball player. But Ken Griffey, or the kid, was, when he started, everybody knew this kid is going to someday be in the Hall of Fame. This kid is dynamite. And uh, they were right. He turned out to be a dynamite baseball player. He's in the Hall. He was great. And Upper Deck was the first company that had a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Everybody wanted it. And when you add this in with the the low distribution rate of the Upper Deck cards, this card became super duper sought after, man. If people would put out a box of Upper Deck cards, dudes might come in and buy the whole entire box just to find the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. I did, I did like a small smudge of research before I started doing this. And on eBay right now, you could probably get yourself a, and I'm talking like a graded, you know, the ones that are like sent off to a grading company and sent back in like a hard plastic case. You could get like a graded nine, 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card for as low as like 25 bucks. If you, if you looked around, you could find one for 25 bucks. I saw them selling for as low as 14 bucks. I see... I did see some that were like 9.5s or like 10s that did sell for more, but dudes were thinking they were going to retire on these. If you think about it this way, let's say you buy like 10 packs of Upper Deck, and that's just being conservative, 10 packs of Upper Deck before finding one Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. The packs were like, let's just say $1.99 at the time. They were a bit more than a pack of Tops, which was like a buck or like a... 75 cents or like a Donruss that was like 75 cents or a buck. The Upper Deck were more of a prestige card. They costed more. So let's say, let's say you buy 10, that's 20 bucks. And then let's just say you are lucky enough to actually find one. You probably won't find one every 10 packs, but let's just say you are, that's 20 bucks. And then you send it out to get graded rather. That is another 25 bucks. Let's just say, so you're out, I guess in the long run. You're out on the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards, which is sad, man. People thought that they were going to put their kids through school on these. I remember dudes would be, like, having entire binder pages full of these and thinking that eventually they were going to be, like, super rich. Oh, I bet at the time, the the move, which you wouldn't have seen, but at the time, you should have... You probably should have sold your Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards because I saw them... I saw them going for more than that. Every once in a while we'd go to shows or whatever, and I'll talk about shows in a bit, but you would see them sometimes for like 50, 60, 75 bucks. So if you had one, you probably you probably should have flipped it quick as opposed to holding on to it for the long run. But you know, who could have who could have seen it that way? You you kind of think that over time when this guy is enshrined in the hall, these are gonna be worth a fortune, but everybody held on to them. And like I said, there were dudes like binder, binder page full of these. That's the way. That was the way you collected and kept your cards. Your more common card you'd put in these cardboard boxes. These long, skinny cardboard boxes. But your rookie cards, your valuable cards, you'd put them inside of, um, like, they they sold these pages that you could put into a three-ring binder. And they would hold nine cards in three rows of threes. And you would put your cards inside of the, inside of the binders. If you had, like... A super valuable card, like a King Griffey Jr. Upper Deck, you might go out and buy, like, an individual 
plastic case that you would keep it in. The fanciest ones were, they were like super thick and had uh, these acrylic screws that you would put all the way through. Like these were like, I'm thinking like three inches thick. If you had, you know, something super valuable like a, uh, let's say I have a Mickey Mantle, like a third year Mickey Mantle card. I might put it inside inside one of these. I, I've bought my dad a few cards, not recently, but over the past, you know, like a... Uh, Last few Christmases, the prices on cards have gone really down. I was able to get him a Walter Payton. He's a big uh, Bears fan. I was able to get him a Walter Payton rookie card. And the card came in this acrylic case that, man, it must have been like five inches thick. It was such a cube. And it was held tight with these screws. It was so, it was so secure. I guess you could still throw it in your purse on the way out. No one would know. But at least, you know... If somebody like bust off a round at it with a with an AK forty seven, you might not um you might not get any damage to your Walter Payton. You probably would probably go right through. But you know it might just bounce off. This could very well be like uh, some kind of a polymer, some kind of bulletproof polymer. I doubt it. It's kind of a scratched up piece of acrylic. But you know one one can one can, can dream. I guess keeping your cards safe. That was like that was like a major concern. I remember I had my binder. And then I had, like, a box with all of my more valuable cards, my Upper Deck King Groovy Juniors and stuff. I did, I did have, like, a few decent cards. I had a Ferguson Jenkins rookie card. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher. I had this Daryl Evans rookie card that I was really into. I had an Eddie, an Eddie Murray rookie card. Eddie Murray's a dude. He had 500 homers. He played for the Orioles. I, I kind of feel bad about this. I'll tell this story before I get back into, um, protecting my cards. There was... There was this kid across the street, and he went to our school, but we, like, we hardly ever hung out with this kid, even though he was, like, a nerd, too. He liked D&D, and he liked all that kind of dumb stuff, but he he tended to stay in the house by himself, and, you know, if you want to be alone, be alone, man. We're not gonna, we're not gonna beg you to hang out with us, but one day, like, we were, you know, goofing around with our cards outside, and he's like, hey, I, uh... I have some cards. Let me go get them. And he brought out like this box of cards. And it was weird enough that that he was like even coming out to hang out with us. But then it was kind of weird that he had cards. But then when he brought them all out, there was there was like a valuable card amongst them. They were mostly commons. But then like right in the middle of the commons was a rookie card of this dude, Eddie Murray. This guy was like, he was like the linchpin. Of the Orioles, dude, hit 500 home runs, he's in the Hall of Fame, he's a legend, and I saw this card and, like, my eyes lit up, I needed it, you know, I very seldom had the chance to get my hands on, like, any kind of, any kind of, like, a more historical card than, you know, just like your normal Donruss Matt Noakes rated rookie, and I wanted it really bad, so I worked out a, a trade where I traded him a bunch of my cards and then a Playboy magazine that I had, like, this 70s Playboy magazine. I have no idea where it came from, but I had it. So I traded him, like, the Playboy and the cards, some, you know, just random cards for the Eddie Murray Rookie card. And it was, like, one of the crowning jewels of my collection. This was, like, a $50, $60 card at the time because dude was, you know, for sure going in the hall. And he's not, like a new Jack Hall of Famer. This dude was like a legend at the time. This was like a, this was like a 70s card, which was, you know, that seemed like a long time ago to our, uh, you know, 80s and 90s aesthetics. I, I did kind of feel bad because I did rip the guy off. The magazine was, it was like super tattered. You know, I had stored it outside 
for a while and it was tattered and the cards I gave him weren't that great, but he didn't, um, he didn't seem to value the Eddie Murray rookie card very, very much. So I, I got it from him and I, I valued it greatly for me a year. I had it in one of those, you know, bulletproof acrylic cubes. And I, I was, you know, super anal about my cards. I would keep my commons like in order in these, you know, cardboard boxes. And then I had my other cards in like, I had a cigar box, a wooden cigar box that I got from my uncle Vern. And I would keep my, you know, individual acrylic packed cards in there. And I would stash them like up high in my closet, like way high in my closet. There were these shelves and they stretched all the way up to the ceiling to get to the upper ones. You would, you would need to get a ladder. So it would be hard to get my cards. I keep them up there, you know, also, so, so I could enjoy them so greatly having them be, you know, possibly far out of my reach. Um, but they stayed up there. The Eddie Murray went up there. The Daryl Evans went up there. The Ferguson Jenkins went up there. And I would keep my binders, like, down with my comics and stuff. And the, the commons would just, you know, they would get stacked up onto the other, other shelves in the closet. Another card, now that I think about it, that was... Like, incredibly highly sought after at the time, which was, which was interesting because it was a Fleer card. And like I said, you know, Fleer was the ones that you would literally, like, stick in your spokes. That's how it was around here. Maybe you guys valued Fleer cards, but we, um, we weren't Fleering it up. But there was one Fleer card that everyone was after. There was this cat named Billy Ripken. Billy Ripken at the time was the, uh, I think it was the second baseman for the Baltimore Orioles. He's most known for being the younger brother of, like, all-time great shortstop Cal Ripken. His dad was also, like, the coach of the team. It was like the Ripkins were the were the whole squad of the Baltimore Orioles. And the, the 1989 Billy Ripken card had, it had a distinction, unlike any other card that came before. Let's, uh, let's check it out. Every year, all the Major League Baseball players gather to have their pictures taken for various baseball card companies. But when Baltimore Oriole Billy Ripken posed for his picture, there were two words written on the knob of his bat in black magic marker, and one of those words was X-rated. The first card surfaced a few weeks ago. No one could believe it. I know what it looks like to me, but I wouldn't say it on television. <laughs> well, the first day I became aware of it, they were selling it for ten dollars. Something about his face. The next day it was fifteen. The next day it was twenty-five. And then uh, two days later, I saw people selling it for seventy-five dollars. What happened was this dude Billy Ripken is standing in the card pose with his bat on his shoulder, and you can see the the bottom of the knob of the bat, and written across it is. The F word, you know, the famous bad F word, and then underneath face, like F word face. I think you get it. And they released the card. The card went into the first set that came out of a Fleer cards. They quickly, like, reverse course, went back, erased the words. I guess Billy Ripken must have gotten to a, you know, some small degree of trouble and... It, it created this mania for the card. Everybody was looking for this card and check it out. This is, this is another story I have based around like an individual baseball card and like a kid that we never hung out with. So me, my bro, 
my cousin, we're all like looking at our cards and hanging out on his back porch. That's what it was like, dude. We had this wholesome, simple life. We're looking at baseball cards on the porch and we're sitting there like looking and talking and blah, blah, blah. And this, um, this youngster, like I was, you know, young, but this kid was like young, like eight, like eight or nine, maybe 10. And he came up and he had like, he had some cards in a box and he comes up to us like all blah, blah, goo, goo, gaga, or whatever kids say, and he wanted us to, like, check out his cards, so we were, you know, we were polite, we were nice, wholesome kids, and we're polite, and we're, like, looking through his cards, and then there it was, the Billy Ripken obscene word card, like, right in this kid's stack, and we're all just like, what should we do, you know, we can't let this kid have this card, he's gonna, like, he's gonna totally mess it up, you know, and it's like, such a valuable property, and it was, you know, like the dude said in that clip, they were selling for, like, 75 bucks, which could, that could practically get you, like, a USS flag at the time, so we were, like, should we, you know, swipe it from this kid, or should we, like, trade him some, you know, slime or something for it, you know, and whatever, and, uh, I'm doing a masterful job of telling the story, it's hard when I dip into, like, the guise of my youngster self, it's hard to, like, come back and be the normal self. Once I start going like, uh, 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 what should we do, dudes? It's hard to come back and be me, but we were like in a real moral quandary here. We didn't know what we should do. So eventually like our morality prevailed and we said we should go and we should tell this kid's parents. So we decided that like for whatever reason, I would be the one that would walk home with this kid and explain to his parents what this valuable card was. Like, they really, they really want to talk to some kid like me about baseball cards. So, we walked over to the kid's house, and he was like, you know, practically a diaper baby. You know, this is like a rug rat, like a sprout. And I walked over to his house, and I knocked on his door with the kid, and when I opened it, like, at the time, this was at the time, the drunkest, creepiest dude I'd ever seen in my life opened the door. This guy was like, a drunk scuzz with, like, beard. He was, like, wearing, like, a tank top and boxer shorts, and he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, oh, um, excuse me, sir. Uh, I was, I was playing baseball cards with your son, and I discovered that there is a valuable card amongst his cards, and I pulled the card out, and I, I tried to explain it to him, like, well, see, sir, this is, you know, the famous, uh, Billy Ripken, you know, obscenity card, and I pointed to the obscenity, and then when I pointed to it, he's like, the bat says bleep face, and he said, you know, the full-on word, and I'm like, yes, sir, it does, this card was, this card was pulled out of circulation, you could probably sell this for, uh, $75 down at, down at Cooperstown, he's like, thanks, kid, I'm gonna do that, and he, like, closed the door in my face and took the card, and I'm thinking, well, that went, well, I mean, I guess it was the moral thing to do, but I, I remember standing there going, he is going to go and buy drugs. I should have just, I should have kept that card and put it into a bulletproof acrylic cube. But um, what else was weird was that like, he shut the door in my face and he left the diaper baby standing there with us. Which I guess, you know, in the long run was probably for the best. He didn't need to go back in there even though, even though he eventually, eventually would have. I wonder what happened to that diaper baby. I don't even know what that family stayed around our neighborhood for very long, because this was, like, the one and only singular time I remember seeing this, uh, this rug rat, or at the very least, like, talking to this rug rat. He may have been running around all over the place, and I have no idea, but that was, uh, that was, like, my introduction to scuzzy parents, too. Up until that point, I, 
knew of SCSI parents and like my friend Andy to some degree had SCSI parents. This was like the first time I'd ever seen like a drunken drug addicted parent in um, boxer shorts, like right in my face like this. It was really shook me up a bit, but um, I think what shook me up the most was I didn't, uh, I didn't get to keep the Billy Ripken card. Let's, um, let's take a quick break and we will be back. This is going long and I apologize, but it turns out I have a lot more to say about cards and stuff than I thought, but we're going to come back. We're going to talk about some of the local shops. It's really going to just be a couple of quick shops. There was one in particular I do want to talk about, but we'll be back in momentito. Now, Long John Silvers and Coca-Cola bring you the superstar baseball card lineup. Don Mattingly. Tony Eagle. Eric Davis. Every time you buy a meal in the large Coca-Cola classic at Long John Silvers, you'll get a pack of five superstar cards free. Bart McGuire. Only at Long John Silver's, making a splash. Better hurry, because with superstars like these, this offer won't last long. I love Long John Silver's so much. We don't have one. The nearest one is a combination Kentucky Fried Chicken, Long John Silver's, and Novato. When we go to the city, we'll frequently stop there. I apologize. I have an itch on my neck. I don't know what it is. It's probably a tick. Uh, we... We'll stop there. For some reason, that place has, like, the most powerful air conditioning of any place that I ever go to. It's like, it's like a freezer in there. It must be to keep the, keep the ocean fresh fish, the Long John Silver's fish fresh. But, um, we, we don't got one. I wish we did. There, there were so many places that were offering cards at the time. It seemed like every, every cereal, I remember post cereal would always come out with a set of cards. Um, this... This company called Mother's Cookies around here, they would put out a set of um, Giants cards that I that I would get and throw away. I can't stand the Giants. And there were just, man, cards were the thing to be. There were, like, baseball card shops popping up all over the place. That's what we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about here for a sec. There were baseball card shops everywhere, and... On on top of there being baseball card shops everywhere, most of the comic shops also... This is a period where the conversion happened, where they went from being comic book stores to comic book slash card stores that, that a lot of them still are today. But now mostly it's like, you know, magic cards and Pokemon cards and stuff like that. But back then it was like baseball cards. Cooperstown started selling baseball cards, fantasy books and games... Not as much, but they did start selling some cards. Clark's Trading started selling cards. It was it was the thing to do, and really, it's smart. You know, you gotta you gotta keep the doors open, and you gotta like stay you gotta stay current with the trends. And baseball cards were like way outselling comic books at the time. I was I was with the trend too. You know, I have this whole episode about it, and this was the period in which I probably collected comics the least. I I still would like read a few comics and, you know, follow, like, what was going on through, you know, like, comic book magazine and stuff, but I, I didn't have a pull list, I didn't have anything like that, which is, which is cool, because I missed a lot of, like, 90s stuff that I'm glad that I missed, it may have, might have soured me on comics altogether, the, the early 90s and stuff wasn't like, I don't know, man. This is when things started to take a weird direction. I I digress. I digress. You don't need to um you don't need me here and go into like this treatise about how comics were whack in the nineties. I mean, what what do I know? I was collecting baseball cards. But um there was a baseball card shop 
where the Baskin Robbins is by Rainbow Foods. We would go to that one a lot. That guy had a lot of like cards that the other ones didn't have. He specialized in like older cards, which is cool because my dad had the 56 tops and I was always into like checking out older, older cards and stuff. And then there was one in Runner Park that my dad knew the owner of this place. This is how, how crazy it got. My dad was working with this guy and he, he quit the place they worked at. Like a nice, you know, nice, good steady job he quit that job to go and open his own baseball card shop i give it to him man that takes cojones you know and i i I give it to him for having the cojones and he he did that and then there was one out in roseland that is still open i don't know if it's like the original ownership or what but it's the same location so i assume it is and then there's another one that was in Sebastopol. This one was a, it was like a converted train station that became a mall. It's still there now, but at the time there was like the baseball card shop was the, was the anchor of the whole mall. Now I think it's Coffee Cats. I'm not sure. I, some sort of, some sort of coffee shop is there now that is the, the anchor shop. That was a, a good store too. We would go there. We would go there a lot. It was on the way to the Sebastopol flea market. We drive past it. Every single week. And I always always think about the card shop that was there. And then there was one directly across the street from the high school. The The high school, Santa Rosa High School had an open campus at the time. So this store became like a hangout. I think it may have been my junior year, like late sophomore, junior year that this store was open and I would go there all the time. It's a two-story building. There is, I don't know if there is today. I hardly ever get over there. But at the time, there was a skate shop open above the baseball card shop. And this was like a hardcore skate shop as far as I was concerned. I don't know. I only went up there like one or two times. And it was like way too cool and sketchy for me. I felt super weird going up there. But that was... Was it the Brotherhood Skate Shop? No, I think that's the one that's there now over in the location of the old Video Droid. I forget. It was it was up there, and the baseball card shop was down there. And I would go there just like a, every lunch for a while. I would spend my lunch money on wax packs and cards and stuff. The owner of the place and I became friendly. He would he would tell me when he got stuff that I might I might want. I guess that's you know that's like a sales tactic. That's not really friendliness, but he was you know. He knew my name. I would go in there. It was cool. I was a regular customer, and that was, like, one of my longest high school hangouts. I would go there all the time and just, like, talk about cards with this dude and look at cards and stuff. Man, I was... I was a dork. No wonder... No wonder I couldn't get a date. Anyway, there was also a... There was a shop, and this is the one that I remember the most, and this is the one that I definitely, definitely think about the most. There was a shop that opened up in my neighborhood in somebody's garage. Dude would open up the shop every day around like 2 or 3 o'clock when the kids would get out of school. It was, there is a park. It's called Garfield Park, and it stretches through um, a portion of Rincon Valley that we used to live in over by um, Jack London townhouses, and... It stretches all the way till it hits the road and then it crosses the road and becomes another park with like a bunch of really neat playground equipment. And the house that had the comic book uh, baseball card shop, brother, was right on the corner, right where Garfield Park crosses the street and becomes whatever it is park. And this was 
This was really close to where we were living at the time. It was like a five-minute bike ride, and Homeboy would open up this place every single day. He kept it real. I remember that so distinctly. Like, you could always go over there, and it was open when it was supposed to be open. It would be dude in there just, you know, doing whatever. The setup was, you know, like I said, it was a garage. You would open up the front of the garage and set up folding tables and sort of like a... Like a square, I guess. I mean, not I guess. It was it was a square. He'd put a square of folding tables in the middle, and he would lay out the cards on the tables. And one table would be dedicated to, like, different wax packs that he would have for sale and different whatever. Sometimes he'd have, like, you know, Major League Baseball pencils for sale for a quarter. And then Homie had a, he had a fridge, and inside the fridge he had sodas and candy and ice cream bars that he had for sale. Dude was a genius. He must have, like, made at least 25 bucks a day doing this, and he only had to sit in there all day. But I I imagine this was done, you know, just for, like, the love of collecting and the love of, like, hanging out and talking cards. Because dude was, like, the super friendliest guy. We'd go in there, and he would be talking baseball cards, showing us, like, the new stuff he got. And he was, like, the coolest bro, except for... I have, like, one story that I look back and I I have regrets about it. Okay, like, I've mentioned this card a couple times over the course of the episode. I was obsessed with this player named Daryl Evans. He was was a player for the Tigers. I was a Tigers fan for whatever reason. This guy was, like, a slow, power-hitting infielder that struck out a lot. Ball two, strike one. Here's a drive hit deep, way back in right center. Well hit and gone. A home run. A grand slam home run for Daryl Evans. And I don't know, man, for whatever reason, I really like this guy. He was like my favorite, my personal favorite of the Tigers. And this was, you know, before the internet. This was before it was easy to find stuff. And I searched hither and yon. For Daryl Evans' rookie card. This guy was like a rookie back in the 70s. He was already in the 40s. In his 40s. When I was um, a fan of his on, you know, back in the day. And it was like impossible to find this homie's card. Because he had like 400 career home runs. But like 35,000 career strikeouts. So he wasn't like a Hall of Fame contender. His rookie card was a common. And it was... Just, like, a difficult-to-find card to me. I would go to shows and I'd be like, do you have any Daryl Evans rookie cards? And dudes would always say no. Eventually, though, I did find one. I paid $20 for it. I suspect the guy could smell my decora- desperation. And he, you know, he raised the price on me. But I had it and I was excited to have it. It was really, like, one of the crown jewels of my collection. It was probably, like, my personal favorite card. It went up way up in the closet in the cigar box but one day I was just like I was straight simping I don't remember what it was I was just like teenage simping super depressed and I decided I'm gonna sell my cards and I I don't know why but I decided this is what I was gonna do I was gonna get some money and I was gonna go go simp out downtown at Aromas and drink coffee or whatever. So I took my card box over to the dude and I got there and I'm like, hey man, do you want to buy these cards? Because that was one of the things dudes was good for. He would buy your cards from you. He would pay like cash money for your cards. So I went over there and I'm like, I need you to buy these cards. And he went through them and he knew that like these were my good cards. And he was like, um, 
I can only offer you this much, but I know that these are good cards, you know, so it's like, I don't know if you want to take this deal. He's trying to, like, be real gentle about it, but he's like, I'm gonna make you an offer on the Daryl Evans rookie card because I have a guy who's looking for this to finish a set, so I can give you 20 bucks or so for it because I know I can sell it to him for, like, 40 bucks, so what do you think? And I, I was simping, and I was just like, this is my favorite card, but I really want that money, and I really... I want to feel bad. I want to simp harder. Do you ever get that way? Remember being a teenager and you're just like, I am so depressed and I just want to get more depressed because for some reason it seemed cool to like wallow in your misery. Now I realize nothing could be further than the truth. It's better to just, you know, put your misery away and move forward. But um, I was just like, fine, I'll take it. And I sold him the Daryl Evans rookie card. And look, I have such regret on this. I'm just like, I wish I had that card all the time. And... The other day, it occurred to me, you know, you could just go buy another copy of that card. And I said, I'm going to do it. So I, I hopped on eBay and I looked and I'm like, hold on. This can't be true. I looked. You can get yourself a Daryl Evans rookie card on eBay for the low price of $4.95 with free shipping. It's a 1970s Tops number 621 Daryl Evans rookie. I'm going to get it. I bought it. $4.95 free shipping is coming. I will be reunited with... My Daryl Evans rookie card. I wonder if I should wait till I have the card in my hand before I play the reunited song. Maybe, but I won't be recording the show then. I'm recording it now. So now you get the drop, you get to hear reunited and it feels so good. I... I'm excited about that. This is like a piece of my past that I've thought about quite a bit. And I don't know why. I don't know why I never thought about just going and getting it again. I don't know, man. I I just, I spend my time going after Star Wars figures and comic books and rap tapes. Now I'm going to get back into baseball cards. I'm not. But um, I used to go to Homie's shop all the time. It was really like an interesting piece of my history. It was Like a really neat hangout to have. I would be able to go there, get my candy, get my cards, and go home and not have to go all the way to 7-Eleven. I go by that neighborhood fairly often. My uncle lives over there, and we drive by there on the way over to his um, neck of the woods. And every single time I go by, I remember that card shop, and I think about the good times I spent riding riding the bike over to there, getting a pack of wax packs. Going home, open them, or sometimes I would stay there and open them in the place. There was this dude that was a rookie at the time. His name was BJ Surhoff. He was a catcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, but he could also play some second base. It was a weird, weird combination. Dude was like a, he was like a agile athletic catcher. He could steal bases and do things that most catchers didn't. And the guy who ran the, the guy who ran the garage card shop, he was, he was investing heavily in BJ Surhoff's. So anytime you would get one, he would buy it from you. So we would go down there, buy a few packs of Don Ross and hope to get some BJ Surhoff rated rookies so that we could, we could flip them back to homie. I don't recall homie paying too much, but it was a kind of a cool deal. You know, you get a dollar or two for a BJ Surhoff rookie card. Then you could like buy a couple more packs or buy a soda at dude's uh, garage shop. I, I think about the garage shop all the time because I'm always going by there and I I want like more of a story. I never really found out dude's deal overall. He was just like the dude who ran the shop and we would talk about like shop stuff, you know, cards and packs and whatever. I 
as an adult now, I'm a little bit curious about dude's background and all that. It wasn't like there were only kids in the store. Neighborhood people would be in his little garage store too. Like, dudes, you know, my dad's age who collected cards. He always had like a few like card collecting buddies that would that would hang around with him. Like, you know, they liked hanging out to the shop. It was fun. I liked hanging out there too. Besides, besides going to shops, we used to also go to shows. Baseball card shows. They're, you know, it's a... Uh, it's a lot like comic book shows, like that whole comic book show sub-universe. And I realize now that, like, Comic-Con and all that stuff are, like, biz business, big business, rather. It's not a, it's not a subculture by any stretch, but I'm talking about the, the strictly comic book show, the shows that are just, like, dudes with tables with comics on them and comic book-related things like that. Not, like, the, the gigantic pop culture festival that, like, Comic-Con and WonderCon and all these things are. Those things are dope. I'm just talking about, like, you know, the comic book shows that used to exist back in the 80s and 90s. That's what, that's what baseball card shows were like. They were, like, dudes and folding tables wrapped around a building. And on the folding tables would be, like, various, uh, various cards and, like, card holders and card boxes. And sometimes, like baseball books, a lot of dudes sell, like, autograph stuff. They would have, like, these binders full of autograph pictures of, you know, Steve Garvey and just whoever, whoever you can imagine, Ron, say, sometimes older dudes, like, Satchel Page or Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, uh, Ralph Kiner, you know, dudes like that, all these legends and not so much legends of the, uh, of the day. I wonder, though, I've always wondered this about autographs. I'm not, like, a big a big consumer of autographs because unless I see the dude sign it, there is always going to be like some doubt about whether dude signed it or not. I I don't get like overwhelmed by those thoughts if I have something autographed, but it does cross my mind and it takes away from the fun. So I have things like that and I have bought things like that, but I am not the autograph collector that I am like a comic collector or a card collector at the time there were shows like everywhere there were shows at the veterans building here in santa rosa there were shows at the scottish rights hall here in santa rosa we would go to like these shows at the uh ronard park community center there was like the big the big all-american collector festival at the moscone center in san francisco that is where they later where they later held WonderCon, the giant uh, comic show that now moved to Anaheim. I think it's in Anaheim. It used to be, first it was in Oakland, and then it was in San Francisco, and then it moved to Anaheim. But they would have the All-American Collecting Festival at the Moscone Center every year. We'd go to that one. That was that was like the WonderCon of card collecting for around here. Everything, everything centered around that. Like, you'd be saving up the stuff you're going to take with you to trade. You'd be saving up, like, all your money for that event, but we, we would go to a ton of little dinky shows besides that show every year. The one that I remember the most was this one in Runner Park. My dad's, my dad's friend who quit working with him to become a card shop owner would put this show on, and there was like, it felt like every other month, and since dude was like friends with my dad, he would sometimes let me and, me and my brother have a table, and we, we built, like, this case. It was, like, a wood frame with a wood bottom, and then my dad put, like, a plastic acrylic top on it. So we had, we had like, the good display case where we would put our better cards. Not that we had, like, a ton of great cards to fill a case, but we would put what we had in there, and then we would put out, like, our commons and stuff. We were just kids. 
everybody knew we were kids. We weren't like the the top flight vendors that were at the show, and people would you know show pity on us and buy stuff. It, it wasn't really pity. We did have we did have some good stuff, you know, some Tom Prince rookie cards, BJ Surhoff rookie cards, the ones that I decided to keep for myself, the Hensley Mullins rookie cards, things like that. And then my brother would pull this gimmick that I thought was funny. He would like take a few things that were like moderately decent or even better than that. Like let's just say a 1989 Upper Deck King Griffey Jr. Take one of those and put like a thousand dollar price tag on it. He'd be like, all I got to do is sell this one and I'm doing great. All I got to do is sell this one and we'll be made in the shade. We never did. Never even came close. But you know, it's like I appreciate that he thought about it and that he tried. That was fun. That was a good time. I remember that really fondly the day. Like, you did spend the whole day. You get there early in the morning, get your table, your tablecloth. We had, like, a, um, like a baseball, a baseball bed set at the house. It was, like, all the different logos of the teams on a sheet. We would, like, use the sheet on the table and set up our case, usually over on the left side. I don't know why. And then all of our other stuff over on the right side. And we would just, like sit behind it. Neither of us were good at, like, standing up and drumming up business like like some people do, but we would try that from time to time. Like, hey, want to, uh, want to see some of this stuff? Nah, 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 or whatever. I don't know, man. I, I don't like that personally when I'm walking through a con. I just kind of want to look in peace, but I, I definitely do appreciate how people, you know, they have to sell to you. They have to upsell. It's how, how you get your money. I dig it, but I, I feel guilty when I don't go in like if the guy's talking to me he's like hey you want to come over to the table and I don't go I just kind of give him the no thanks or whatever I feel a little bad for rejecting him and I figure I should go and just look and be polite but then once I've like gone and looked and you know listened to his whole his whole like selling spiel you know I feel even worse if I don't buy something so it's like a big loop you know because I don't want to I don't want to make somebody feel rejected because I've done shows and I know that it's no fun when you get rejected but man that was a good time I can still like I can still see the inside of uh, that building and what it was like. Many years later, we were doing like a workout class over at the convention center and we were in that room and I'm thinking, man, some of the goofy memories of this place was so many moons ago, so long back that I was sitting here behind a folding table selling rookie cards from dudes who just started in the major league. It was cool though. And then we would go to the big Moscone Center show every year. That was like... That was like the big to-do of the year for the three of us. My dad would always kick us down 50 bucks, 50 bucks each, which is, you know, that's not small money, man. That's not small money at all. And we would, we would be free to spend that any way that we wanted to. We would also like save up anything that we could save up to like maximize, maximize the amount of money. And we'd bring our binders for just in case you buy something dope, you can put it in your binder and maybe you could trade some of the stuff you have in your binder for something else that you might want. I I was never a big trader. I did I did try it, but these dudes, they want money, man. They're not there to trade for your rookie cards. They got enough rookie cards of their own they're trying to get rid of. These things These things weren't like a scarce commodity. It makes one wonder how we thought we were all going to retire off these things. But um, that was cool, man. These kind of These kind of bigger shows, these are like sweaty affairs. I enjoy going to these kind of things. I haven't in many years, ever since WonderCon went to Anaheim, I have been on the outs with like these kind of shows. Not on purpose. Not on purpose. WonderCon was here and I went every year and I missed that though, but it's like a sweaty, difficult day. The walls are like, the walls are like just jam-packed with, you know, wall-to-wall people and you're just kind of like trying to squeeze through. By the end of the day, 
you were like sweaty and just bombed out and depleted. It was always a super memorable day, though. Just like the biggest day of the year, man. You cannot help but have a good time. And with 50 bucks in your pocket to spend on like wax packs, who knows? Who knows what you would come back with? I remember coming back home with like bags and bags of cards. And a lot of times people would have comics. I'd get tons of comics there, too. It was such a good time, man. It's so seems so long ago that I've even been in the Moscone Center, even though that place was like, it was like a big part of my life. You know, I went to this show and then I went to WonderCon. I was always like at the Moscone Center. Now I, now I never go there. They have a show, the, I think it's called the San Francisco Comic-Con that runs that building, but I've never, I've never been. The tickets are very, very expensive. They're like 60 bucks. The WonderCon tickets, I'm not even exaggerating. The WonderCon tickets were $10. And they would just, like, pack that place with people. So much fun, so much fun. But um, at this show, they would have cards, card supplies, but also they'd have, like, people signing autographs, like old-time baseball players and dudes of the day, just all sorts of all sorts of personalities. This is just like when you go to a comic book show, but it's baseball players instead of, instead of comic book artists or sci-fi celebrities. And every once and again, they would have, like, free autographs, and that was, like... That was my brother and I's favorite thing. We would go up and we would get autographs from the dudes and just like see what were like the weirdest things we could get them to sign. Not like, not like in a way that we're messing with them. We were just kind of like having fun. We would try to find like a, for example, like a non-sport card and take it up and see if we can get the guy to sign it. And one year they had Link Gates. Link Gates was like the toughest brawler in the NHL at the time. He played for the San Jose Sharks. And this was, like, during the heyday of hockey fights. I don't think there are that many hockey fights anymore. And Link Gates was, like, the toughest dude in the league. Everybody knew that he was. He was bad to the bone. He played for our local boys, the Sharks. And they had him there signing free autographs. And my brother and I were, like, we were, like, a little nervous to go up to Link Gates and ask him to sign something goofy. We're, like, this guy might just straight punch us in the face. He seems plum loco on, on the tube. So we somehow... We gathered up our courage and we found like a Disney card. It was like a, I think it was Fantasia. I have it around here somewhere. It's like a Disney, Disney card that was showing like different stills from different movies. And I believe it was Fantasia. I'm not exactly sure. I should know this. I'm going to say it was definitely a Fantasia card. We got the Fantasia card and we, uh, we went up and we're just like, uh, could you sign this for us, Mr. Gates? And he was like, oh yeah, man, sure. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like. The nicest dude that we had ever met. He was, like, super kind, super cool. And we are like, talking to him. And then we're like, we got to get him to sign something weirder. That was too cool. So we went out and we bought a, like, a red Russian hockey puck. It was, like, a red hockey puck with a CCCP on it. And we're just like, let's go get Link Gates to sign this. And we went up and he signed it. I still have it to this day. It's on a shelf. It's one of my, one of my prized possessions. I think back to this all the time, how... We thought this guy was going to, like, grab a hold of our ears and punch us right in the middle of our faces. But instead, he was signing weird stuff for us. Like, he's like, I don't care. I'm getting paid anyway. I'm sure that was his attitude. It was just, like, a nice, easy payday. There weren't a lot of people going up to Link Gates. So there was, like, us and a few other dudes. But he was just kind of sitting there by himself. It was, like, too good of a, um, too good of an opportunity to pass up. I think that he, I think he later got into boxing, if I recall correctly, but I'm not, I'm not certain about that. I was trying to find some Linkgate highlights interviews to use on this, on this. And when you type him into the, uh, into the YouTube box, all that comes up is just like 
hockey fight, hockey fight, just page after page after page. Apparently there's this whole, like, hockey fight video subculture. I was not aware of that, but Link Gates is, he's a big dog on that set. They also, besides having, like, celebrities, a lot of booths will have what they call, like, booth babes. I don't know if you're familiar with this. You get, like, you get some gal and you dress her, you know, somewhat scantily, maybe like a swimsuit or whatever, and you get people to look at your stuff by offering the opportunity to go over there and get a picture with the girl, and I... I did that once. I, I'm i not, I'm not super outgoing. So I don't like go out and chat people up that much. My brother's with me and we're, and we're messing with Link Gates. It's one thing, but just like going up to, going up to some hot chick in a bikini when I'm just like a greasy teenager was not like a move I made a lot. But one time I did and I got a pic of uh, me with the booth, babe. I got it around here somewhere. It's so hilarious. She's looking, you know, she's looking delightful. She's in shape. She's looking like, you know. She's working, and she should be, you know, a booth babe. She looks like a booth babe. And I'm, like, a greasy, pimple-faced teenager. I'm, like, covered in sweat. My hat is, like, sideways. My tiger hat is, like, coming off. It was such a hard day walking through these things. You definitely get sweaty. You definitely get scummed up. And by the look of this picture, I still got it. By the look of this picture, I went up to the booth babe and got the pick. Uh, at the very end of the day, it must have taken me, like, the entire day to muster up my courage. Like, my shirt is wrinkled. You can see sweat on the shirt. Like, I have, like... This mustache that's coming in, my hat's crooked. I I love this picture. I look so disgusting. It's the worst. It's like the worst image of me ever taken, but at the same time, it's also it's also one of the best. Look, I think I'm going to get out of here. There might be a couple more minor stories I can tell about comic books and stuff, or baseball cards and stuff, rather, but I don't know. We're probably at the end of the good stuff, so... I'm going to sign up out of here. I hope you found this. hope you found this at least worthwhile, even if you're not into baseball or baseball cards. I think there's some some good nostalgic stories in there that, um you know, might stand the test of time. So this is me, Icy Robots. I'm signing off for uh, this boring life, number eight, baseball and baseball cards. Yo, Kevin Zerby, take us out of here. This this boring life oh this boring life i can't get my boring boring life this boring life i can't get my boring this boring life oh this boring life Can't get money for me.